Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution, not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. Hello. Welcome to the Sarah Avon Stover podcast, a space to come home to your inner wisdom. I'm Sarah, best-selling author and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality. And this podcast was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations about all different facets of the feminine spiritual journey. But above all, I created this because I believe that when a woman gets still and quiet enough to hear her inner wisdom, she's able to live her true path in the world. I hope this podcast helps you do just this. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back. And today I am sharing with you part two in this little series I'm doing this month on 10 things I've learned in the past 10 years in honor of the 10-year anniversary of the publication of my first book, The Way of the Happy Woman. 
So I'm going to just dive right into it. And I, the first episode I did number one through five in this list. And here I'm going to go through six through 10. And number six, this is a big one. (laughs) How to trust myself and my inner guidance. For these past 10 years, I learned how to trust myself and my inner guidance. Definitely in a bigger way than I did before. And this was really instigated by, actually, let me back up a little bit. So in my first book, The Way of the Happy Woman, really the heart of it is about connecting with our inner wisdom. And ever since I started my career in my early 20s, this has been my primary focus. This is, I feel like this is part of my soul's purpose in this lifetime on this planet is to really give women the experience of trusting their our inner wisdom. After so many centuries of abuse and gaslighting, and this leads us to really doubt ourselves on a number of different levels, even if even if and when we've done a lot of work on ourselves. So it makes sense that then I had a deeper initiation into this um, back in early 2016, right after my second book, The Book of She, came out. And I I was at home one evening. It was early February. I was making dinner. And my fiancé at the time had been together for five years. He came home and told me he had been cheating on me. And... He said he was just with one person, and I later found out many, many others. There's still probably many more that I don't know about, which I I don't want to know at this point. Um, But understandably, that caused me to really question my, my reality, and more started to be revealed to me, and I started to see that I was in the position of having received narcissistic abuse for those those years. And there was a lot of gaslighting. And there were a lot of times when I when I brought forward things that I felt weren't right, that didn't feel right, and dreams that I was having. And my reality was constantly being denied. I was told I was being insecure and jealous and crazy. And I know this is just such a common experience for women. I work with a lot of women coming out of those types of situations, leaving those types of relationships. And I know it's happened throughout history in so many different ways. And I I was really shattered, not just from the betrayal. That's, that's its own kind of shattering, as everyone who's been betrayed knows. And I don't wish that on anyone but also in terms of just really rupturing my relationship with myself, with my own inner wisdom, with my own sense of what was happening. And I realized that those five years, my life wasn't what I thought it was. And actually, I still don't know what was actually happening. I I know what my experience was, but I know that what was actually happening was different than my experience different from what I was being told. So in the years since then, it's been five years since then, it's been an intensive experience of rewiring 
myself, rewiring my nervous system, rewiring my intuition. And at times this has been very painful and very confusing. And also I know very important because in the rupture of that relationship with myself and then the repair of it, it has forged an even deeper an even deeper self-connection and even even deeper commitment to my own truth or what what I can call my own spiritual authority and now really placing my own experience above everything else above external advice above external opinions external status quo and knowing that how I feel, how I experience the situation is my ultimate truth and is is right. And now I'm in a place where, and I guess it was it was also true when I was younger, but even more so, you know, when I'm making a decision, it can of course be a process. And I, I recommend that decision making is is a process and that we don't make rash decisions, that we need to include all parts of ourselves. Um, Many of you know, I I work with internal family systems therapy. And, you know, one part of us can want to do one thing, another part wants to do another thing, another part has reservations about doing that thing. Whenever we're looking at doing something, there's a lot of parts that have a lot of different feelings about that. And I think it's important to not make a decision to not move forward until your parts are on the same page. Uh, but once that happens, and there can be things that we can do to facilitate that happening, rather than just staying in ambivalence for a long time and not making a decision. Decision making is important for just moving forward with our lives and living life in an empowered way. But once I know, then I can act immediately. And even when that acting immediately is in the direction of something very important, very life altering. Like I did that when I had my abortion or when I moved to Santa Barbara a few years ago, or even when I moved back to Boulder this past fall, it was just this, this clarity, this knowing of this is what I, this is, this is my instructions. This is what I'm meant to be doing. And that I can do those things now, even even if and when it doesn't make sense to other people. And it's it's really transitioning from from living on doubt or living on external validation to living according to my own faith, my own intuition. And this is a process that will continually be developed and honed throughout my life. I know that certain things are necessary for this to be present. I know I need quiet time. I need time for introspection. Definitely time in nature, like when I'm not on my phone or listening to a podcast. Time writing in my journal, sleeping, meditation, prayer. These all really help me because it's hard to hear this guidance when life is full of noise or when I don't have enough alone time or when I'm when I'm too tired. So number six is how to trust myself and my inner guidance. Number seven is 
recognize, recognizing the importance of ancestral healing. Recognizing the importance of ancestral healing. A lot of what I've grappled with in my life, I now see from where I stand now at 43 and a half, is not a result of my own personal shortcomings. It's not things that are wrong with me or major personality flaws, but they're a result of intergenerational trauma. They're wounds that I have inherited from my mother's side, from my father's side, a whole host of things, you know, eating disorders. Um, there's been mental health challenges. I don't have mental health challenges, really. I have, I have suffered depression at times. I probably will again. Um, that's something that's in my, in my wiring. Um, and there's been a lot of addiction, alcoholism in my family. That's not something that I've struggled with, but I have struggled with other forms of addiction, kind of softer addictions, like my eating disorders. I, I was an exercise addict at one point. I was a workaholic at one point. So I've learned to see that you know, these things aren't aren't here. I'm, I haven't grappled with them because I'm doing something wrong. And that, that belief in myself and in many of us is part of the disease of Western culture, of, of the disease of hyper-individualism and only looking at these little units of one person, one psyche. And psychotherapy perpetuates this in many ways, just looking at an individual outside of one's relationship with non-human realms like our ancestors or with, with culture. And some years ago, it was right after my abortion, I was visiting here in Boulder with an older woman in town and just saying, just saying to her, I could feel a new energy coming into me. And there was a strong energy and has, has a wildness to it. Not a wildness in terms of being out of control, but just this, this raw power. And I said, I've never had a real spiritual teacher or have I've never felt really drawn to one particular spiritual lineage. And I think that's because I always, once I got closer into a certain lineage, I could see the shadow side of it. And ultimately, all of those lineages, even if they were appeared to be a feminine lineage were patriarchal and I'm just not interested in that. And she was saying how, well, it's important then that you work with your ancestors and your ancestors are your lineage. And she referred me to a man named Daniel Four, who wrote a book called Ancestral Medicine. And I, I did a session with Daniel at that time and I've since gone on to work with him more in depth and read his book and taken courses on healing my ancestral lines and really going back. And I'm not the one who heals those lines, but I go back in time, even, even many generations, to the last ancestor in each of my four lines that was wise and well and kind and with the support of that ancestor healing the rest of the lineage that was not in that state. 
And I've learned that, you know, one, this is a serious practice. There is a a rigor to it, a discipline, a structure to it that needs to be adhered to. It takes time. You know, I would say it takes at least a year to go through all four lineages. And then from there to just start working with them regularly. And it's, it's, a ser- it's serious business because there's deep wounding and trauma and even dark energy in these lineages. One of the things that I learned was that I was actually under an ancestral curse and that my part of my life purpose was to come in and heal this curse that was over my family line. Uh, but I wasn't aware that that was happening or that that was part of my function, part of my purpose for being here. And so the ancestors were just getting louder and louder in my life, creating more and more hardship for me until it really got to the breaking point where I, it was, it was really getting to be pretty ridiculous how many things were going wrong, no matter if I was doing everything right. And ultimately met with a wise elder who clarify that this was a curse and gave me gave me the the rituals the the protocol that I needed to to break that curse or to break that spell so this can happen and we need to be we need to be aware that this is a thing that 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 there's these larger forces at play at the ancestral level that goes beyond our rational mind or our individual lives and many other world cultures know this. And I had the great honor of living in Thailand for a decade where ancestors were very much a part of daily life, of studying in West Africa in college. And the ancestors are very alive and well in West African culture. So originally, many cultures had at least one person in the family who tended to the ancestors with offerings and with rituals and with pictures because the ancestors are the ones who receive us when we die. And when we give birth, they're the ones that cross over back into into the realm of the living. So we all need to be received into a well lineage when we die. And when we're bringing children in, we want to bring children in also who are from a well lineage. And we want to stop passing on these intergenerational wounds, these intergenerational traumas. So I found it's very liberating to realize that what I have been struggling with throughout my life hasn't been mine. And when I work with women, helping women to see that, that what they're struggling with isn't theirs either. And in IFS, internal family systems, it's another really beautiful modality to work with these ancestral wounds and IFS are called legacy burdens. And one of the things that I saw in IFS when doing healing with eating disorders on myself and when I work with other women on that, it's that oftentimes 95% of that isn't ours. It's it's these burdens that we inherited from, from our families, from our lineage. And that in and of itself can be incredibly empowering to recognize. I want to take a short break from today's conversation to tell you about a six-week series I'm teaching online this summer called Changing with Grace, A Woman's Path Through Life's Transitions. 
We've all heard it, that change is the only constant in life. And while change is inevitable, growth is most certainly a choice. And just because this is true doesn't mean it's easy. Change, I know, you know, is hard. Globally, we are all undergoing a great change. What was no longer is here, and what's to be is not yet here. And given this level of uncertainty, which will likely be present in different ways, larger degrees for the rest of our lives, how do we navigate the unknown while staying deeply anchored in ourselves? Plus, as women, we're intimately linked with change from our flexing hormones and ever-changing bodies to aging, relationships, our work, family, identities. All of this change can bring up fear, doubt, nostalgia, anger, anxiety, confusion, depression, disorientation, as well as excitement because even positive change can be challenging at times. And since this change isn't going anywhere, how can we learn to be with it more gracefully? How can we accept it, move with it, partner with it, even when it's unwelcome, to still create a life that feels true and fulfilling? Over these six weeks, we'll come together as a community to support, challenge, and witness one another in the exploration of change. Doing this within a conscious community is far easier than doing it on our own. By applying ancient wisdom teachings and practical embodied psychological tools to our modern day changing inner and outer landscapes, we'll fill ourselves with more reserves and strength to weather life's changes with grace. We start on June 23rd, and to learn more, head to sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag change. That's sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag change. sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag change. I look forward to sharing space with you then and there. And now back to today's conversation. Okay, number eight, the importance of grief and how to let go. So one of the things I've learned over this past decade is how to grieve. The first time that I really remember experiencing grief was back in 2008, 2009. My grandmother, my mother's mother, after whom I was named, her name is Sarah Avant, She died. I mean, she lived a long, full life. She was 91 when she died. But she she and I were very close. And in a lot of ways, I felt like she was really the only person that I had throughout my childhood who really, really saw me, who really, really got me. And so when she died, it was it was very it was a very challenging time. I'm grateful that I worked with a therapist then who who really understood grief. She, she was a widow. Her husband had, had passed away from cancer. And so she, she taught me a lot about grief and that provided a good foundation for me. 
And then when my betrayal happened with my former fiance, after our five-year relationship, I went into very, very deep grief. And at that time, I was working with another therapist who had also had a history of coming out of out of a marriage with um, a man who had narcissistic was on the narcissistic spectrum. And I learned a lot from her and she she really supported me in understanding grief and introduced me to uh, Sabanfu Somme, uh, West Af- um, d- deceased now West African elder from Burkina Faso and her work on grief rituals and that that she and her ex-partner Malidoma Somme brought to the U.S. and I was able to attend a grief ritual here in Boulder, which was really life-changing. And Sabanfu Somme often asked the question, have you grieved today? And I was able to see how grief is so in the shadows in our culture and we're left to grieve alone. (laughs) There were times when you know, grief is very physiological and it comes in waves. And there were times when it would literally knock me over and I would be lying down on my kitchen floor, my face against the floor, just heaving, sobbing from my bowels, it felt like. And sometimes even like howling. I remember it was a summertime and the windows were open and it's just the kind of cries that only come in the depth of grief. And I could just see, wow, we're not meant to grieve like this. It's this too strong. It's too hard. We need support and people around us. And I learned that one of the ways that I could do that was to create a container around me. So if I felt a wave coming to call in my ancestors around me, to call in guides and helpers and teachers so that even if I was alone physically, that at the spiritual dimension, I could still feel held. And that felt important for feeling like I could get through that more intact. Because one of the other things that happens is, you know, people are so afraid of grief. And sometimes it felt in my life like it was rats from a sinking ship. And I, a lot of people just disappeared. Like they, they couldn't handle seeing me in pain. And it was really those people who had been in that depth of pain or who had experienced that depth of loss in their own ways that could be there with me and who knew that they didn't need to do anything to fix me uh, or didn't didn't need to give me advice. In fact, it's very inappropriate to give someone who's grieving advice, let's say ask for it. But what's really imperative is just to be there with the grieving person, to sit with them, to rub their feet, to bring them food, to ask them to go for a walk, to call them on the phone, just to show up. And now I know, I know how to be with people when they're in those dark places. And I'm grateful that I had that, that training. Now it's actually a really deep privilege to be with people in in pain and who are deeply suffering. So while grief is definitely one of the hardest teachers I've ever had, it's also been one of the most profound one. Number nine, 
I learn to include my sexuality and sensuality in every dimension of my life. This is a big one for, I think, for all of us, no matter what your gender is. So I'll just start out by saying that I grew up in a very conservative, wealthy, white town in Connecticut, and the culture there was very repressed sexually and many other ways. And that kind of atmosphere was translated into my childhood home, where there were four of us, four daughters, and there was, we had no sex education. And, you know, I don't blame my parents for this because I know that they didn't have that either. I know that the environments that they grew up was even more repressed than the ones that I grew up in. Uh, But it still had an impact. I, I learned about sex through, I think the first time I saw a sex scene was I was watching that movie, um, Mr. Mom, that's going to date me a little bit. <laughs> I was born in 1977, Mr. Mom. And then I remember sometimes seeing Playboy magazines at like one of the houses where I babysat or uh, on the Playboy channel late at night with my sisters or some of my friends. But overall, it was very confusing. And I I remember also once I started to go through through puberty and into high school, I loved lingerie. And my girlfriends would buy me lingerie sets for my birthday or for Christmas. And I loved just collecting matching bras and underwear. And um, for my the photo shoot that I did for my first book, and then I did a new, I launched a new website around the same time. The man that I was dating at that time encouraged me to do kind of less of a yoga shoot and more of a fashion style magazine shoot. And I did and it was it was really fun and it allowed this more sensual edgy part of myself to come forward and you know I wore lingerie in some of those shots or um black sequins hot pants and heels and it was a lot of fun and it that helped to elicit forward a, a new dimension of myself that had only come out in just more private places. And a few months after that photo shoot, I went to Burning Man and that came out even more. And in Burning Man, you have a playa name and my, my playa name was Vixen and Vixen loves to wear lingerie and sexy boots. And it just, it was really empowering and enlivening to let my sexuality, let my sensuality be expressed so publicly and in such a safe, such a safe environment. And it helped me to feel more, more like me, more integrated. And of course, you know, day-to-day life is not a photo shoot. It's not Burning Man. And when I've gone through hard times, when I've been grieving, feeling sexy is really the last thing on my mind. Sometimes in life, it's really more about survival. But when survival is is there, is intact, there, there's more energy to go in other in other ways. And like everything else that, I, that I'm naming here, I know this is a this is a process, and I'm up for lifelong learning. And I, I advocate lifelong learning. There's no point when we're done with learning. 
But I've really come to understand how my sexuality is my life force, is my eros, is the foundation for everything. It's not just some some piece of the pie. And the more that I can remember that and cultivate that and, and just do things each day or as a regular part of my life that, that help me to feel turned on. You know, when I, when I don't leave the house during the pandemic, I still do my hair and put on makeup and put on an outfit that I like. And even little things like that are important. And then doing things that, that help me to feel more essential in my body, like dancing or doing more of a sensual yoga practice or taking baths or getting massages. So a lot of these five years I've been single and this isn't something that needs to be done with a partner. Having a partner certainly helps to elicit it more but it's definitely also something that can be done on one's own. And I something that I love about women's yoga and meditation, the, my own personal practice of it and the teaching of it, is that it's a safe place to bring in this sensual element. And I've found that when I kind of go off script with the yoga outside of the patriarchal practices, that it can be very erotic and Yogasms are a real thing. I actually taught a teleseminar years ago called Women, Sex, and Yoga. I think it's one of my most popular ones. It's about yogasms and how sensual and erotic your yoga practice can be, especially when we just practice it as women together. It's safer and gives more permission to, to play and explore. And number 10, which... I think ultimately is the most important and that is I learned how to pray. I learned how to pray. I first want to acknowledge that prayer is often frowned upon. Unfortunately, there's so much wounding from religion both from current time and this intergenerational trauma, understandably. But I hope that we can start to have some more healing around this so we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and so that we're not so afraid of words like prayer and God. Because another thing that I've learned really is there's no getting through hard times without believing in a higher power at least for me and many of the people that I work with, we need to, we need to plug into something greater than ourselves to make it through hard times, times when our minds can't help us. They don't understand what's happening. We need a bigger perspective. I grew up Catholic and my childhood home was not not a happy place for me to be most of the time. There was alcoholism in my family, and I turned to Mother Mary when I was scared and prayed to her and had visitations from her when I was young. I went through a phase in high school where I was atheist. That was actually the darkest period of my life. Eating disorders were very bad at that time. Also, I had a lot of depression at that time. And then in my early 20s, when I moved to Thailand and spent that decade in Southeast Asia, 
I discovered Buddhism and really Buddhism became a central part of my, my practice. And it wasn't until my first book was about to come out and I was down in Santa Fe doing a transformational speaking intensive with Gail Larson, which is phenomenal if anyone has ever taken that or has a chance to. And I had a, a profound visitation from Mary Magdalene. And I write about this story in my second book, The Book of She. And that, that visitation really shook me. And I continued to have visitations from her for some time. And really made me, got to the point where I was really questioning my sanity at times. And luckily, one of my spiritual teachers at the time, a teacher in feminine, feminine spiritual practice, helped to orient me. And she, she encouraged me to get an image of Mother Mary, to set up an altar with offering bowls for her. Certain, there's certain protocol for those offering bowls each day. And first thing in the morning to sit and speak to her and then to receive what she was saying back to really start to strengthen this channel for divine communication. And she encouraged me to do that come hell or high water. And being the good student that I am, I did that. And it took some time to build up that muscle for divine communication. At first, there was confusion around it, doubt around it, you know, you name it around it. But when I was disciplined about it and really didn't make it about whether I felt like it was getting anywhere or not, or if I was in the mood for it or not, just like a practice, you, you do it no matter what. It changed me. It changed my life. And prayer now is a central feature of my life. And I understand now that prayer is innate to us. We're actually hardwired to pray, to have this connection with the infinite. We need it to live, to, to orient uh, it's my saving grace. It's where I turn first and last when I need to make decisions. I don't just rely on my personality to make these decisions, you know, unless it's like, what should I eat for lunch? <laughs> it's, sometimes I sometimes I pray, pray about that if I'm being very indecisive. But generally speaking, you know, the bigger decisions in life, I know I need to hand them over. And I know that the divine will will tell me what it is I'm to do. And that goes back to the first one in this, in this chunk, number six of trusting myself and my inner guidance. And like I said, this needs to be practiced. A a lot of women share confusion around this. Uh, You know, how do I know? How do I know that it's a voice of the divine versus just another voice within me? And the only way to know is to, to commit to a practice and to cultivate the discernment between those voices and to then cultivate the trust. So meditation and particularly more of a feminine style of meditation helps with this and helps us to cultivate this receptivity, this openness to something greater than ourselves, to relaxing our personality structures and allowing something that's more intrinsic and whole and holy within us to to rise to the surface. And there you have it. 
There you have it, friends, the 10 things I've learned in the past 10 years. Obviously, I've learned so much more than this, but this is a little snapshot, distilling things as best I can. And before we part, just a reminder that another thing I'm doing to honor this 10-year anniversary is I created a new version of my women's yoga and meditation teacher training, which actually is the training ground for learning and cultivating all of these things that I just shared today and many more. I'm bringing this online for the first time. It's going to be a 200-hour yoga alliance training. So if you want to really specialize in working with women with yoga and meditation or integrate that into your existing professional practice, or you just want to go deeper into these practices, this is a great opportunity. Because it's online, it's more accessible. You don't need flights. You don't need accommodations. You can do it from the comfort of your own home over the course of four long weekends through the fall and early winter. So we start in September of 2021. We finish in January 2022. Registration will open later this summer. And if you want to be notified when registration opens, you can get on the early notification list at sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag teacher training list, sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag teacher training list. All right, I will see you all next month. And until then, take good care. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining me and for taking this time out for yourself. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you'd take a moment to rate and review this podcast. That way, other women who might enjoy it can better find it. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.